It was so very good to be with you this morning at Redeemer and um, uh, to share in our worship together and to open the Word of God together. I'm going to be looking at that gospel passage out of Luke chapter 14. So if you have access to a Bible electronically or uh, a real Bible, right, like this one, uh, you can open it there. I'd be so grateful. But let's ask God the Holy Spirit to come and be our teacher and our guide uh, as we open the Word this morning. Almighty God, we thank you that you have given us the Word of God written that you have spoken through men and women, and that we've received your word through them. And so, so now we pray, Holy Spirit, would you come and be our teacher and our guide. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you ask a person today who does not follow Jesus Christ what they believe the gospel teaches them, they will most likely say that Christianity teaches them ethics, and morality, how to be a better person, how to love others, how to forgive others. In other words, the perception of many unbelievers is that Christianity is primarily an ethical code, heavy on right conduct and light on everything else. And if that is in fact the case, then we who follow Christ must ask ourselves, has the message of the gospel which we proclaim, which we live out in our lives, adequately conveyed the gospel that we have received from Christ to those who are not yet in Christ. In other words, have we in our generation proclaimed Jesus with unmistakable clarity? Is he central to our proclamation? Have we set forth who he is and has the gospel we proclaim laid bare that we are all fallen creatures before Almighty God? Have you and have I made clear that Christianity is not a do-good religion, but rather a religion that looks away from ourselves to God who has provided something for us, something that nobody else could provide? Is that what we're proclaiming? Because as I listen to many of the conversations around the church with my colleagues, I've discovered that much of modern Christianity centers around me, centers around my desires. And the popular rendition of Christianity in this modern millennia has so often been a religion with self-gratification, self-interest, self-love, self-idolatry. I mean, not at Redeemer, of course. I'm not suggesting these things. <laughs> Everywhere but Redeemer, right? I see this, for example, regularly in the, the modern biblical debates over, let's say, the ordination of women or same-sex marriage or rituals or infant baptism. The conversation generally centers about me. This is what I believe. Who cares about 2,000 years of church history? It's what I believe and what I want and what I think would be best for me and my extended family. And we buy into this modern self-focused Christianity. I do it also. We're short-changing people, though, if we do. And we're not sharing the fullness of the Bible. And to shortchange people is always an injustice. It's a disservice not to tell the old, old story of Jesus and his great love for me and to count the cost of what is demanded of the Christian. That's what Jesus teaches here 
in Luke chapter 14. He had become very popular. We read great crowds were following him. We see that in, in Luke chapter 14. But we discover, interestingly, it's not even about the great crowds. It's about following Christ. And Jesus gives us here the definition of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, a definition of Christian discipleship. Did you notice as, uh, as Steve One, is that what we call him, Steve One? <laughs> the big Steve, sorry, Lauren, the, uh, the, the chief Steve. Um, three times in the gospel passage that Steve read to us was one phrase that Jesus repeated those three times. Did you catch it? He cannot be my disciple. That's rather chilling, isn't it? In fact, Jesus says it three times. He's saying, here is a lesson, and here is a conclusion. He cannot be my disciple. And these words, these words don't come from some random church leader. They come from Jesus' lips to our ears this morning at Redeemer. He cannot be my disciple. And Jesus repeats this phrase at the end of each section in our text to drive home this point. And it's a rather chilling lesson for us at the end of the summer on Labor Day weekend because the cost of discipleship has always been the same. When Jesus bids a person to come, he bids them to come and to die. And that's, that's tough, isn't it? It's hard for us to hear, and it comes from the lips of Jesus. The word disciple... Uh, uh, our English word disciple comes from a Latin word that means pupil. And you'll immediately recognize the connection between the English word disciple and the word discipline. In fact, if I'm typing on the computer too quickly, which is generally the case, and I type the word disciple, my brain often types the word discipline. And I have to go back and correct it. Because if you send discipline instead of disciple, someone will think there's a trouble. But that's what it means. It often means discipline. So a disciple of Christ is a pupil who has been trained by Christ, who has been instructed by him. And discipline is, of course, one facet of that. Not someone who has a quick nod to Jesus and puts loose change in the Sunday offering, but one who comes to Jesus and is discipled and disciplined and trained and instructed and you would say, because you've been uh, involved in this, Steve, number two, catechized in the way of Christ and the teaching of the church. And Jesus speaks about these very holy and important matters in the passage that's before us. Great crowds of air, as I've mentioned, accompanying him, many people standing with him. And he turns to them and says, do you understand the cost of following me? Do you understand that cost? So let's take a look at the passage. If you've got it there with you, let's uh, dig, dig a little deeper into the Word of God this morning. Three things I want to say. They're not all original to me, but I hope they'll be as empowering to you as they are to me. The first is the word consecration. Would you say that with me? Consecration. We often speak of a bishop being consecrated, but in fact, in the Scriptures, we are all consecrated to follow Christ. And this passage in Luke 14 will make no sense at all unless you are persuaded of the value of Jesus. He is everything, 
irresistible, indispensable, my all in all, my full sufficiency, I am dead without him. Is that how I'd describe him? Everything that I am is wrapped up in him. Everything that I need is found in him. The disciple who has fully surrendered their life to Christ is consumed, infatuated with the person of Jesus. They are consecrated to him. Paul would later write about this uh, to the Philippians where he says, Whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss, as nothing for the sake of Jesus. In fact, he says, I count everything as loss, everything, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Is that how we would describe our following of Christ today? It's just so important for you and for me and for all disciples of Christ that when we're captivated by Christ, we can gain this understanding of being consecrated to him, counting everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Consecrated to him. Jesus speaks of it in a very awkward way in this passage. In fact, we were reading the passage in the car before I came in this morning, and my daughter Frances, who's here this morning, said, you can't use that word. It's not a good word. But it's the word Jesus uses. Let's have a look at it in verse 26. Consecration to Christ is defined by Jesus in one word. Do you see it there? It's the word hatred. Do you notice it? It's worth underlining in your Bibles if you do that. And if somebody's next to you has got a Bible and they haven't underlined it, take out your pencil and underline it uh, in their Bible. It's a very strong word, that word hatred, isn't it? It's a word that's difficult to touch and difficult to handle because it really means detest, doesn't it? Hatred. Hatred. I, I'm, I'm recalling my mother saying to me, we don't, we don't use that word hatred of people. And yet Jesus uses it here. It makes us recoil. Jesus is saying consecration to him is defined by hatred. But Jesus goes deeper still. Look with me. It gets very weighty, this. The objects of hatred are all the things that are the dearest to us. Do you notice? The people who are the dearest to us. Father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters. Hatred. What, what on earth could this mean? If we go back to Matthew's gospel, he helps us define this, this very weighty word here. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So what does Jesus mean here in Luke 14 when he uses the word hate? He defines it in Matthew's gospel as loving someone more than loving him. If we love anyone or anything more than him, then we are not worthy of him. Hatred means to love less. If you do not love your father and if you do not love your father and your mother less than Jesus, if you do not love your wife and husband less than Jesus, if you do not love your children less than Jesus, you are not worthy of him. And in fact, Jesus goes even further. He says, you cannot be my disciple. 
It's weighty, isn't it? It's, it's, it's heavy. We see this back in Genesis 29, if you think back to the scriptures, where we read that Jacob hated his wife Leah. He did not have an intense animosity towards Leah. He simply loved her less than he loved his wife Rachel. That's a problem when you've got more than one wife. I shouldn't go there. I'll get myself into trouble. <laughs> As I read the scriptures, I firmly believe that we love our mother and our father and our spouse and our children better by loving them less than we love the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, brothers and sisters, nobody else, not even your spouse, can be Jesus to you. But if Jesus is Jesus to you, then you're able to love everyone else around you biblically and unreservedly because you are loving him more. And we sing this in that great hymn in the faith, take my life and let it be consecrated. There's that word again, Lord, to thee. Our love for Jesus is to be so great that in comparison, our love for our family is like hatred. It's not just loving Jesus a little bit more than we love others. We love Jesus so disproportionately greater than we love anyone or anything. Is this true of us? Because it searches us out deep within. As I was writing this sermon uh, uh, this past week, I was thinking about my own love for Jesus. Does that describe how I love him? Do we love Christ more? Are we able to say, Lord, my loyalty is to you, Jesus, above everything else. My consecration is to you greater than it is to anyone else. Do we devote our best to Christ? Or do we give him the leftovers? You think about that this morning. Consecration to Jesus. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. That's the first thing Jesus says. Get that right and you can be his disciple. Get it out of balance, Jesus says. You cannot. These are his words. Be my disciple. The second thing, look with me, verse 27 of Luke 14. Jesus speaks about cross-bearing. Look in the text. Whoever does not bear his own cross... And come after me, cannot be my disciple. It's the second time he says it. Have you ever heard someone say, you might have say, said it yourself, that's your cross to bear. <laughs> that's your cross to bear. Steve thinks that when he uh, thinks about his relationship with his bishop. That's my, oh no, he doesn't think that at all. <laughs> <laughs> you know, somebody has a bad back, a touch of sciatica, an allergy to tomatoes or hay fever, uh, an ill relative to care for, a cantankerous spouse to live with, and you might say, that's my cross to bear. What utter nonsense. That is not your cross to bear. It may be something you have to process, but in terms of what Jesus is saying here, that is not your cross to bear. Here is the truth. Taking up the cross had a literal precise meaning before Jesus turned it into a figure of speech and recorded it for us in the Gospels. Remember, Jesus was living in a nation that was occupied by Romans and by the Roman army. And the Romans reserved crucifixion for the most despicable criminals and a condemned man uh, to death, by, condemned men to death by crucifixion. They compelled them to carry their own cross to the place of execution. 
We read that about Jesus in the Gospels. And on one occasion, he faltered and needed some help. When Pilate turned Jesus over, we read in John's Gospel, they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull. And as followers of Jesus, we are to put ourselves into the place of a condemned criminal on his way to the place of execution. That is what it means to bear your own cross. If we follow Jesus with a cross on our shoulder, there is only one possible place to which we could be following him. There is only one place to which people go when they are carrying their cross, the place of execution. I read earlier this week while reflecting on these verses, the translation of Luke 14:27 in the complete Jewish Bible, which translates our verse this way, whoever does not carry his own execution stake cannot be my Talmudi, my disciple. Are, are we carrying our own execution stake this morning? And if we are, to where are we heading? It was Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the, the German pastor and theologian and anti-Nazi dissident who was executed just before the end of the Second World War on the 9th of April, 1945, who said in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, listen, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and follow uh, and, and work to follow him. Or it may be a death like Luther's who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world. But it is the same death every time. Death in Jesus Christ, the death of the old man at his call. Bearing your cross. You see, brothers and sisters, the bearing of our cross must precede our following of Christ and not the other way around. We cannot follow Christ and follow self simultaneously. No doubt we've all tried that. The one has to yield to the other. Which one is yielding in your life? Either we abdicate, abdicate the throne of our lives in order that Jesus may ascend it, or we say, I'm the king of my own castle and dethrone Christ in order to do so. It is either self on the throne and Christ on the cross or Christ on the throne and self on the cross. As the Apostle Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. A self-centered Christian is a, term uh, is a term that has only contradiction to it when we read the scriptures. You cannot be a servant of the Lord involved in the life of his kingdom without saying no to self and yes to serving Christ. Sacrifice is central to the Christian ethic. You know, we'll change the world if we believe that as Christians. Putting ourselves on the cross and Christ on the throne of our hearts will change the world because it then becomes all about Jesus, doesn't it? We proclaim him, we live him, we talk him. We share him. People see past us to him. It becomes all about him. If you've uh, never read this little book called The Shadow of the Cross by Chantry, I'd love to encourage you to read it this morning. I have one copy. If you would like it, you can come to me after the service. I'll give it to you. It's about following Christ, giving up our lives, serving him, yielding to Christ, 
being cross-bearers. If not, you can uh, buy it online. So thirdly, let's have a look. The third time Jesus uses this phrase, he talks about calculating the cost. Would you say calculating? And say cost. Here is the third time Jesus uses this phrase. Look, if you've got your Bibles open there, in Luke 14, verses 28 to 33, Jesus says, For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while he is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has, here it is again, cannot be my disciple. This is so weighty, isn't it? We've talked about consecration. We've talked about that challenging word, hatred. And here we talk about renouncing everything if we want to be his disciple. What's the cost? Well, it's everything, isn't it? Everything. All to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender 10%. If you know the great hymns of the faith, that's not what it says, is it? It's all to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all, everything. And that's what it means. Jesus was clear about this. Calculate the cost of discipleship. Otherwise, you'll be like a man who starts a building project and runs out of resources and time and materials. And what he begins remains unfinished. What a tragedy. Or you'll be like a king who goes out to war, ill-prepared. If you're a disciple of Christ, you have to calculate that your whole life, everything you have is devoted to him. And this third time, Jesus dives deep, so deep on this theme, verse 33. Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has, can he truly mean that? All that he has, everything? Surely he doesn't mean that. But yes, he does. Yes, he does. Calculate the cost. There's always a cost to confess Christ without any commitment to Christ is foolishness. This is, what, this is what sent the early Christians to the fire, to the stake, to be sawn in half, to give of their lives in the modern martyrs as well. They realized that surrender means everything, even their lives. This is why I'll ask of those being confirmed today, if they will renounce the devil and all spiritual forces of wickedness that rebel against God. And if they will obediently keep God's holy will all the days of their life, be consecrated to him, be a cross-bearer, calculate the cost of being the Lord's disciple. It's costly. It involves everything. And the Lord concludes this passage in Luke 14 with a word about those Christians who start off well, but become compromised and ineffective in their discipleship. Look quickly with me in verses 34 to 45 at the end of our passage, uh, 34 to 35. Jesus says, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, 
How shall, it be salt, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or the manure pile. It's thrown away. He who has ears, let him hear. I can hear us standing before the Lord in heaven. And the Lord saying, but what did you do with your life? And you say, but I didn't know these things. That's why he says here, if we have ears, let us hear. He tells us in his word. You know, most salt in Jesus' day came from the Dead Sea. And it contained impurities, kaolinite and gypsum. And if it wasn't processed properly, it would have a poor taste and would be worse than useless, being unusable for food and creating a disposal problem. Similarly with disciples, if the the conditions of discipleship are not kept, disciples likewise become less than worthless. They, they in fact become useless. We saw this in that short passage that was read to us uh, from Paul's uh, short letter to Philemon. He says, Philemon was useless to you. He calls Philemon that, but it's a play on words because, Philemon, uh, because Onesimus' name actually means useful. He says, useless has in fact become useful to you and to me. We see this also in the message to the church in Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3, where the Lord rebukes being useless, your lukewarmness. He says to the Christians, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you, vomit you out of my mouth. It was the great uh, Anglican author, important to remember that he was an Anglican, C.S. Lewis, who said, the only thing Christianity cannot be is moderately important. In Luke 14, Jesus is saying, Christian discipleship is very salty. That should be good for you in Annapolis. We're in a, we're in a Navy town here. Be a salty Christian, right? It's flavorful. It's preserving impact, not only in our lives, but also in the world. It is a salty life, to use Jesus' illustration. And he says there are some who have lost their taste, lost their savor, lost their flavor. There are some Christians that have lost their lot with Jesus, who are following the pack of people rather than following him, who after a while say, I'm not really interested in them and him anymore. One of our rectors in the diocese told me just a few weeks ago of a woman who came to church regularly on a Sunday, but during the pandemic stopped coming, who's eventually said to him, I just like my Sunday mornings now. I like to keep them to myself and I won't be coming. I have a friend, a preacher friend, uh, whose name is Marcus, who says, if you're going to go for God, go all the way. And if you're not going to go all the way and give it all that you've got, then it's probably better that you do not even begin. It's costly. It's salty. It's about cross-bearing and consecration. Christian discipleship is so costly. It's so costly. But Christ calls us to come to him. Here's the Lord of glory who has infinite worth, who's so filled with splendor and beauty, he needs nothing outside of himself, and he determines to show forth his glory by creating human beings, us, you, me, in his own image. 
and he creates creatures. And those creatures he creates wage, wage a coup and rebellion against him. And now he has set about to bring to pass their redemption. These enemies of God who are filled with everything that is vile and repugnant. And the Lord says, I, the King of glory, I'm going to humble myself and become the incarnate word and come among them. And I'll enter into the creation which I made by my own power and I'll humble myself. And he comes among us. But we reject him. We mock him and scourge him and spit on him and revile him and crucify him on a cross in order that he might be declared sin. All that is opposite to his person so that we might live in him forever. Here is the Lord Jesus Christ sacrificing everything. All of this, why? Jesus did it, we are told, for the joy that was set before him. He did it willingly. He did it freely. He did it voluntarily. He did it all in the depth of redeeming love for every one of his elect people. This is the love of Jesus Christ manifest in his dying sacrifice. It's incredible, and it's beyond our comprehension. Think of all that. Think of all that and come back to this passage where we compare what has been asked of us. Compare now the cost of Christian discipleship as we think on Jesus. Because if we compare what has been asked of us with the sacrifice of Jesus, it would not even register in the balance on the most sensitive scientific scale that could be created. He has given everything Everything so much more. Surrendering all is nothing in comparison to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Living the gospel, loving Christ crucified, and being his disciple is attached with the freeness of his sovereign grace that he obtained for us. This is what enables Christians like you and me to get up every day and say, I will consecrate myself to him. I will be a cross-bearer. What was the complete Jewish Bible's translation? I'll, I'll take up my execution stake. Man, that's scary. And I'll calculate the cost in order that I will not lose my taste, that I'll still be salty. For we are numbered amongst those who have been captivated by Christ in this beautiful gospel. And we choose to live in subjection to him. And as we do, even with the demands of discipleship, how do we respond? By saying, it is well. It is well. It is well with my soul. Amen? Let's pray. O oh Lord, our gracious God in heaven, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace, both of which thrill our hearts, both of which push us in our motivation to walk before you. Grant that you'll deliver us from nominal, superficial, unbelieving Christianity. There's a cost here, Lord. You've told us that this morning. You've taught us that by your Spirit. We're to be consecrated to you cross bearers help us to take up our cross daily 
and follow Christ. Oh, Heavenly Father, that we would not be compromised in this world as we calculate the cost of following you. Grant to us, O oh Lord, that we would be plunged into a dying life and to spend everything we've got living fully. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. <laughs>